Hello, and welcome to SaaS Scaling Secrets, the podcast that dives into the trenches with leaders of the best scale-up B2B SaaS companies. I'm your host, Dan Balkowski, founder of Product Tranquility. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Eric Huddleston. Eric is the Chief Executive Officer of Aprimo. He has 25 years of experience in marketing technology, AI, and B2B SaaS with deep go-to-market and product expertise. Eric has helped scale technology companies across a wide range of settings, early stage, late stage, PE-backed, and public companies. Prior to Aprimo, Eric was president of Cision through its successful sale to Platinum Equity. Before Cision, he served as CEO of Trendkite, which sold Cision in 2018 for $225 million after four years of greater than 100% compound annual growth. Join me as we explore Eric's unique stories, uncover the secrets to his success, and reveal his strategies to scale Aprimo successfully. Let's dive in. Welcome, Eric, to SaaS Scaling Secrets. Appreciate it, Dan. Super happy to be here. Well, I'm very excited for our conversation today, Eric. For people in the audience who are not intimately familiar with you and your journey, can you really briefly just introduce yourself? Tell us a little about your journey in the SaaS world. Absolutely. So I've been in the SaaS world since before there was a SaaS world. So it got started in the, the early 90s, right at the dawn of digital. And the first product that we launched in market, we were woefully behind on delivery for. This is when you ship CDs to your customers. And so we ended up convincing our, our early customers to let us host their product for them. And then just to save time, because we didn't want to have customizations for all of our customers, because back then enterprise software, you did a lot of customizations. We kept it in one code base and one database. So we ended up with multi-tenant hosted enterprise software in 95, probably. So I'm, I'm probably an of, of SaaS by, by that measure. Well, definitely an OG in 95 with hosted software, because that was, I'm sure many people were not even aware of what was possible. As you look back over your career, many people have a moment where things just change for them. I sometimes refer to it as your superhero transformation moment. What was the, I'm Peter Parker, I get bit by a radioactive spider, go to sleep, wake up, I'm, I'm Spider-Man, everything is different. What moment was that for you in your career? Yeah, it was actually super early on was kind of the first transformational moment. And that started out, I was really technical and I probably would have ended up being a developer and then a development executive. And that's how I would have ended my career. But it was the early days of the internet. Nobody knew what an internet was or what you would do with one. And so I, I got drug out into the field by sales reps. And as I was drawing this giant take over the world architecture diagram of how their business was going to be transformed by digital and the internet on the whiteboard for a Fortune 100 company, I realized that the, the diagram and the pitch that I gave was in some ways more real than the software that I had built. And so from that moment on, I had a every job, I had one foot in technology and products and one foot in sales and go to market. And so I don't know if I'm a techie that likes to sell or a sales guy that's a little bit technical, but I really think that that was a pretty profound realization of being able to see the market from both sides. Mm. Well, I don't I want to be careful. Is the lesson learned there that the salespeople aren't afraid to sell vaporware and software that doesn't exist? <laughs> what is the well, takeaway? It, anyway, yeah, it was a little different for me because if I sold the vaporware, I had to deliver on it. But <laughs> so, so I learned to be careful. But but I think that there's one of the things that is challenging for organizations is understanding the laws of physics 
when they're executing their go-to-market motion. So you either get really good at selling and you get out over your skis, or you build so much stuff that you know it crowds out what that the market actually needs or wants or what matters out of the hundreds of thousands of lines of code that you wrote without having a single person use it in anger. Mm. <laughs> well, hopefully nobody's using your software in anger. I can't imagine what that would look like. Oh, press this button. Maybe, <laughs> I, I, I may have shipped some software in some days that maybe cause people to use it in anger. One of the best metrics in the world, I'm, I'm trying to think of who who coined the, the phrase, but it, it was one of the, the early analytics, SaaS analytics providers, but the term was the rage click. And it would analyze when somebody like hits hits the the, the mouse button repeatedly, and and it'll it would actually show you your app, and you get like a little heat spots where the rage clicks were. So you say people using your software in anger. That's actually a, a great product metric. Well, if if anybody wants that experience, just go use your local state government uh, website uh, today, and you too will understand the the power of the rage click because uh, that software has not been updated since 1987. That being said, so you started on the, on the tech side, you get dragged in, uh, by the sales folks to actually go out in the field, talk to customers, understand. Hey, there's a, a way that the software I'm I'm creating actually has to make dollars and cents and create value for for customers. How did that lead you into senior executive position? I guess you and I first were introduced, I guess, when you were at at TrendKite, but did you make the transition fully over to the business side? What finally pushed you over that edge? You know, I always always had roles that that had responsibility in both. And that was really, I think, unique and valuable. Mm -hmm. But I think at some point, the oil-fuel mixture of that moved more and more towards go-to-market optimization and less towards technology innovation, which might make me a little bit sad, but the cynical side of me tells me that that's telling you what the world of technology values more. Yeah, for sure. Well, for just to kind of complete that arc, I guess, so now you're at a Primo. So can you just give us a a real quick uh, snapshot of what a Primo is, its mission, and and I I guess how you found yourself uh, leading this current company? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Primo was one of the high flyers in the MarTech space, mm-hmm. uh, kind of same vintage as Marketo. They filed their S1. They got an offer above their stock price that they had to take. So they got acquired by Teradata. That, by all accounts, went terrible. And they were carved out in 2016. And they lead three Forster waves, the MRM space, which you could think of as the all of the marketing, budgeting, planning, uh, workflows, like the back office of the front office uh, of marketing. Uh, and then they lead the digital asset management space, which you can think of as like the, the rep- repository for all of the stuff that marketing creates. And then all of the plumbing for how all of that stuff that the that, that marketing creates finds its way into all of these customer experiences and and then into into the market. You mentioned a few interesting things at the beginning. I, I want to kind of circle back to. So obviously, this podcast is called SaaS Scaling Secrets, and so you've been a leader of of a couple of pretty intensely scaling software companies. I guess what do you feel is sort of the conventional wisdom about scaling that is untrue in in your experience? 
<laughs> Most of it. I mean, so so one thing is it's not uh, one size fits all, right? Zero to one, one to 10, mm-hmm. uh, and loosely 10 and beyond are very different. So it's kind of four phases scaling. And the playbooks that you use, the problems that you face, they're different from I'm a B-round venture-backed startup that's 15 million ARR and I'm trying to get to 100 versus I'm a public company and I've got $800 million of ARR and the the laws of gravity are such that to put even a point of growth on that is like like launching a man to the moon. So I think that's the biggest kind of misconception. People have all this advice but they forget the context in which that that advice works and I've had the the the, the privilege to have a a fairly eclectic career so I've I've been in founded companies I've been I've taken over companies in their seed stage taken uh, over in late stage been a section 16 officer in uh, a public company so I've seen all of the all of the stages with a growth mandate and they're just radically different. No, I think that's absolutely on point. And I spent a lot of my time in the pricing and monetization world. And I even, just, I even did a webinar the other week. And it's like, people are like, well, that's broad, but that doesn't apply to XYZ sort of industry space, whatever. And it's just like, yes, no, because advice needs to be very uh, specific. I guess I love this. I can tell you're technically minded because a few times now, whether it's uh, throwing a man on the moon or physics of companies, you're using a lot of these analogies. So I guess, is there a universe, like, and, and for context, let's assume it's a company of the sort of scale that, that a Primo is, or, or maybe where sort of uh, Trendkite was before it's sold, right? So it kind of give you a, a universe in which to, to land this question. Is there a speed of light constant, a, a primary rate limiter of growth and scale for SaaS companies at that size? The number one rate limiter to growth for, for a SaaS company, particularly in, in B2B, but, but generally is organizational capacity for change. As soon as you have any understanding of how to sell to your market, the thing that that is going to hold you back is going to be how fast you can absorb the changes that you have to make in order to optimize your go-to-market motion. So if there is a Planck's constant in in scaling SaaS, it's that. that. That's the rate limiter. Well, so help break that down a little bit, organizational capacity for change, because I think I know what you mean, but I'm not 100% sure. And if I don't understand, I'm guaranteeing maybe our listeners don't aren't followed either. Like, how, what are the sort of subcomponents you're thinking of when you think of organizational capacity for change? Yeah, so it's if you grow at any meaningful rate, mm-hmm. things break. Mm-hmm. And as things break, they kneecap your growth. So the faster that you fix the things that break, so that thing scales a, a little farther than it did, the faster you're going to grow. So you can look at almost any growth chart for a SaaS company that's, that's have even 15% growth rate or, or higher. And if you, if you like zoom in enough, eventually you're going to see a, a kind of a stair-step looking growth curve. It's almost never smooth unless they, they really mastered that that kind of scaling a- axiom because you have to detect the thing that's the bottleneck in value creation. Then you have to fix the thing that's the bottleneck in value creation. Then you got to test it and then you got to scale it. And those little cycles 
create these little fits and starts throughout the kind of the buyer journey that you're taking the your market segments that you're selling to through. Got it. So let me see if I can use an example, maybe at a, a sm- earlier stage. So I think there's a well sort of known transition point where you go from sort of founder led sales to to hiring a, a sort of a sales team. And some of the where some of the companies don't survive that sort of phase transition is because it's like there's not the founders like intimately knowledgeable of the business. And then they try to bring out, oh, we'll just hire 20 sales folks and just have them go run around and cold call and just run a play. But there's not really a sort of a defined sort of playbook. Is that sort of like sort of capacity for change yeah. sort of moments? That yeah. You if we go at? all, if we go that far, that early stage in an organization, yes. So like, okay, I can close so many deals just off of my infinite knowledge of my company, my product, the problem that I saw, I can use my gravitas. I'm, I'm going to be the best dancing bear in in the sales cycle, and I'm going to mm-hmm. be any alternative solution just because I'm the founder. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. now that doesn't scale anymore, right? I can mm-hmm. only do so many sales cycles and still run and, and grow the company. So I'm like, okay, now I'm going to hire some sales reps. And so I hire maybe not 20, but I hire the first five, seven, eight sales reps. Now then, the next thing that I do is... I send them all out into the market, and then they bring me in to the right meeting in each of the sales cycles. So now I'm not running the sales cycles. I got people that are running the sales cycles for me. I'm just like the the pixie dust on top of those sales cycles. But while I can do that for the five sales reps, if I want 10 sales reps or 15 sales reps, all of a sudden, the time that I have as the founder and the dancing bear, I can't even do all of the pixie dust meetings. It's like, mm-hmm. so now then I have to figure out how I'm going to, to do sales enablement and sales, a sales process. And so that's the next thing that I'm going to have to go figure out. And it's like, okay, but now then the reps are all starving because the magic SEO driven inbound that I'm getting won't feed all of the mouths. And if I need more sales reps, then I need more food on the table. So now then I've got to you know, rev up the mansion and it just keeps going and mm-hmm. it gets more sophisticated and harder to solve with every scaling point of the organization. And that's really what I mean by organizational capacity for change. Every one of those things is really hard. And the farther you go, the harder the changes are that are going to have a material impact. Got it. Well, and no, that's super helpful. I really appreciate the those examples. I think they give me a, a much more concrete idea of what you're referencing. So, as I understand, so so a primo, as you mentioned, acquisition and then spun back out, et cetera. And then you came in as a non-founder leader of an existing organization. I guess, is there, when you start as a leader, is there a way you think about like understanding what that organization capacity for change is? And then how, I guess from there, like, how do you think about, okay, how do I accelerate that? Is there a process that you go through? Yeah. So the first thing that I do is I call it mapping the buyer journey. And what I really mean by that is, okay, they have some TAM that they've got well articulated. What are the actual market segments within those? What are the buyer personas within those market segments? And then how do we attract them? So you can think about like the marketing funnel, like, oh, this is how we create awareness. This is how we get them engaged. This is how we qualify them. And now we're getting into the sales cycle and you have your sales stages there. I know, okay, now then we're... Uh, convincing and we can solve the problem in some kind of solutioning phase. Let's go, oh, now we're we're getting selected. They've decided that we are the one that's going to solve the problem. Okay, now then we're in contracts and whatever our close process is. 
now we have a customer. Now we have a post-sale journey with whatever the onboarding and adoption, value realization, renewal kind of stages are. So I, I figure out what those are. Everybody has them, but they're usually just like containers for stuff. Like people like forget the reason why you know those exist in the first place. And so they do a lot of things inside each of those stages, but they're not very articulate about why. So I like figure out what's the actual value that's getting created in each one of those stages. Like what's the objective and how can you quantify that? And then I figure out what activities are the actual key activities that create that value. So if I'm in a classic insider outside sales motion and I'm in the qualify stage or whatever you, you call that, maybe it's the discovery call. Like that's the thing that's actually from an organizational perspective, at least drives the value of that stage. Like if it's the solution stage, maybe it's the demo or the free trial or whatever. So I figure out what that activity is. I figure out the resources that execute that activity that creates the value. And then I do some very lightweight instrumentation, like stage duration, stage conversion rate. How do I quantify the quality of those key activities? And how can I articulate the efficiency at which the resources could be people, it could be like a marketing budget, or maybe it's API calls from Stripe or whoever I have as a vendor, mm-hmm. uh, what, whatever those resources are, how do I understand how efficiently I'm executing the key activity? If I get those four things, I can then diagnose like, where's the bottleneck like uh, in value creation? So it's like, like lean manufacturing. And you do value stream mapping and you figure out like where the bottleneck is, just like it was a factory floor. You can identify where the the optimization ought to take place. And that then gives you a map, even if you don't know a lot about the business yet or, or, or what people, like how do we need to reorganize or any of those things, you at least know like where is the low hanging fruit in increasing growth. Mm, mm. Well, let me ask a dumb question because I put myself in the shoes of maybe a listener here and they're like, well, okay, yeah. So my VP of marketing, they understand what our customer funnel looks like from first website visit or talking to us at a trade show all the way to them becoming qualified lead. And then sales team has got their pipeline stages set up in the CRM, right? And then customer success has got their whole renewal cycle or onboarding flows that they go through. I guess what is missing in sort of that retelling of the world that you're sort of looking at that's different is there yeah two or two or three things are missing one there's a macro worldview there that's local optimization versus macro optimization so like yeah i can go let my marketing team like go try to figure out how to generate more leads but oh those leads are low quality and so they're converting at a low rate that's sapping all of my sales capacity So the efficiency of my sales reps is very low. And the number one driver for the low efficiency is actually quality of leads. So I actually want marketing to generate less leads at a higher quality rate to actually optimize the growth rate. So so that's the first thing is you have to have global optimization, not local optimization. Mm. The, The second item is you end up with the, the end in mind. And so like your marketing person is trying to optimize for MQLs or whatever they're turning over to sales. Sales is trying to book deals. And so even in their local optimization, it's not in human nature really to have that kind of disciplined thought process of like, 
where in even in my part of the world is the best place for me to optimize. So that's like the second problem. And then and then the third problem is like in a lot of cases people are drowning in metrics. Uh so they a lot of people have a lot of great instrumentation and then the question then becomes like how do I really know the thing that I should try to optimize because you have very limited resources to put against change initiatives. And that's mm-hmm. why if you're very disciplined about what's the key activity and how much of your organ, your organization's labor is going into executing that key activity. If you don't have like maniacal focus on just those two things, you're going to, you're going to, you're, you're going to have an entropy problem. A lot of your energy is going to escape as heat versus being converted to kinetic energy, moving the the deals forward. Got it. Got it. So, so make this a little bit tactical for me. So, so you come into a primo, like what is kind of first 90 days, first 180 days of this process look like as much as you're willing to talk about it of like, what did it look like in a primo? Like in terms of like, how did you make this idea, this system tangible for your other, your senior leaders that you're, you have together? Like what's the, I guess, what's the artifacts? How do you get them thinking of, and moving in this model? Right. Is it just a series of new, I imagine it's more than just a series of dashboards or a new OKR process. I imagine it includes some of that, but that's not the entire thing. So can you just lead us through what that first, maybe one, Eighty days looks like. Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about kind of the big five things I try to to implement, and then I can back up and I can talk about like what is the what is the ninety day plan? Which, by the way, I think ninety day plans are actually kind of bogus because everybody asks like, okay, like what's your ninety day plan if you were to take this company over? And it's always the same, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to spend month month one like assessing the situation and doing my discovery and my research. And I'm going to spend the next month like building my plan. And then I'm going to spend the third month like executing on the quick wins or however you say it. From my perspective, that sounds like I'm going to spend 90 days to do 30 days worth of work, uh, (laughs) which I I don't find is like a great value proposition to be pitching. So I kind of hate that, that the kind of term and concept are much more believe in kind of the the law of incremental gains uh, or okay. marginal gains. And you make a very small change that take a very short amount of time to execute on. And a bunch of things happen. One is you don't have a bunch of wasted time before you get to value. The risk of failure is much lower. There's a compounding effect of small changes called value under the curve where you know, even if it's less efficient to make a whole bunch of small changes, the fact that, that the business benefits accrue early means that the value that takes place before you would have got to the same point, like with a big bang, but much more efficiently executed approach, you, you'll never produce more value than you will with kind of the small incremental changes. And then it builds momentum because well, I, nobody really... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was nobody say, remembers I was, all the failures, just yeah, the wins. Well, I, I was going to say too, like I, I, it's clear to me now, kind of think about my previous experience. Sometimes, like I've left companies because they get too bureaucratic, and that as a CEO, asking for small incremental changes also gives you a really good signal of 
the organization's capacity for change. If everyone's immediate reaction is, well, we need to have a set of 10 meetings around this decision to see how we can actually execute it. That's really good insight for you as a new leader to be like, oh yeah, this organization can't make any changes because what you asked for is so small, it should be done immediately. And you get to see the bureaucratic uh, mess that you yeah, You can route around that. And, and I'll talk about some of the things that I do there, but you actually lied on one of the things that, that is always the case, which is kind of like a corollary of Gaul's law, any complex, successful system evolved from a smaller, less complex working system. And you can, by extrapolation, it's it's law of incremental gains. And it's so hilarious. Anytime you go into a new organization or anytime you want to launch uh, a change initiative, it may start with like the classic is always like, oh, we're going to tweak the sales process somehow. And it's like, okay, we need one more field on the opportunity, like everybody always needs one field, but mm-hmm. you know, I mean, one more field on the opportunity to enable this process change. And then you'll have the 10 meetings and the outcome of the 10 meetings is we're going to re-architect our Salesforce <laughs> data model. <laughs> it's the first step of the little tweak to the sales process. So, so you kind of have to divorce that. The, the five things that I do, one is I'm, I do map the buyer journey. It's a great mm-hmm. way for me to understand how I create value in the organization. It identifies the things I actually care about. And it gives me a cheat sheet for the things I don't care about. Like, because mm. you know all of the key activities that's actually creating value, at least in from a growth standpoint. And so I do that. I do a rudimentary level of business instrumentation, which we kind of talked about like the bare minimum of kind of conversion rates and stage duration. You need to be able to, to slice and dice those a little bit, to do a distribution of those. So not necessarily as as simple as it sounds. So key activity, quality metric, those resource pool, efficiency metrics. And then I take those efficiency metrics. So that's kind of two instrumentation. I take those, those efficiency metrics. And what those really are in 90X percent of, it, of the time is that's your CAC and your cost of revenue uh, models capacity models. So mm. I'll take those and then I'll just roll into finance and I'll bolt, bolt them onto my forecast model so that I'm now using the, the capacity models that I discovered for executing the key activities. Uh, and I use that then to predict my forecast model. So it's using yesterday's weather. It's sort of like at the current efficiency and quality level of our key activities and the, the resources tied to growth, this is what's going to happen for the next 12, 18 months if we make no changes. And it's always 106% of the time, much worse than whatever forecasts that they have. And in fact, it's, all, it's usually shockingly bad. And so, but once you have that, then it's a blueprint for what's going to happen when you make each of those little changes that you're talking about making. So then I take, I, I roll out an OKR process that is focused not exclusively, but pretty much exclusively on optimizing the, the instrumentation of the buyer journey based on those assumptions in that assumption-driven forecast model. And then I roll out a cadence of the business, like I inject it into every meeting. Like, so you organize your week and your month and your quarter so that you can harvest as much time and focus from the organization as possible on the change initiatives. 
going back to the thesis, that's what was the rate limiter for growth. So you inject it into the staff meetings, you inject it into your operations review, you inject it into the one-on-ones that, that, that take place. And that then reinforces kind of like this virtuous circle of optimization and measurement of the change of your go-to-market. Interesting. And, and, and so you said a ton there. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to summarize and recap, and I'm probably going to get part of it wrong. So feel free to correct me where I do. So, so starting with really understanding how you're driving value for the customer and the, and, and the buyer, and maybe those are, are the same or, or different depending on your go-to-market model, understanding which activities in your organization really go create that value at a, at a, a detailed level, understanding how we're sort of uh, instrumenting those activities and, and the outcomes that those are creating and using that to understand, okay, what is the set of resources, time, money, people I need to put against to those activities get to, to get the, to get those outcomes. So it's almost what I kind of heard there, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's almost like a zero-based budgeting of like looking at the customer uh, journey to, to figure out like, okay, what do we, what activities, like who do I need? Not because these are the people I always have and we're just going to increase headcount 10%, but understanding with the activities that drive value, I need to support those uh, activities with a certain amount of resources. And then wrapping that into a uh, set of, I guess, financial financial outcomes in terms of customer acquisition and, and your cost of revenue. And then how do you sort of do goal setting around all of that with OKR? So and, and feel free if I, I, there was a lot you said there I was trying to track. So did I summarize it correctly? Yeah, pretty much it map the buyer journey, then you want to instrument it so that you can understand you know, the, the, the quality, efficiency, quantity of value creation. Then you want to weld that to a forecast model so you understand how that's going to impact the growth rate and performance of the organization. If you extrapolate that into the future, then you want to roll out an OKR process to manage the optimization of what you learned from those stages. And then you want a cadence, you want a, a cadence of the business that drives the urgency, accountability, and visibility of those change initiatives. So that takes up enough of the oxygen in the room that you're actually going to get maximal organizational change. Mm, mm. And so OKRs, so, so that's fantastic. And, and I, uh, yeah, so I, I missed at the end, right? Is it that wrapping it in that cadence of in the operational meetings with, at the executive team level and, and all the metrics that all and discussion that is being had there to make sure progress is being made? You did mention OKRs. OKRs are an interesting topic. Some companies have found them to be successful. Other ones find that they take up a lot of time and they have a limited usefulness. I guess, have you had... I, I, what have been your lessons learned to actually do the OKR process effectively? And I know we could probably talk for three hours on that topic alone, <laughs> but like, is there any sort of takeaways you've had from uh, being a senior leader in, in implementing OKRs that you think would be helpful to folks that maybe have struggled with that process? Yeah. And, and OKRs are just a vehicle for doing it. It's just the most popular vehicle for organizing the company around change. So they have to matter. So a lot of times I watch OKR processes, which are basically like, Everybody just makes their stuff up and it's not coordinated. So it's like people are saying what they think is the most important thing. But if everybody did what they think is the most important thing, would we actually be in a better spot? 
And so the, the most important thing is OKRs are a focusing mechanism to allocate a percentage of the, the labor in the organization towards change or towards the most important uh, activities. Mm. So you have to define what's important. So there's a whole conversation about how you set your corporate strategy and all of that. I'll, I'll gloss over that for a second, only to say, like, once you understand what the levers are that you need to, to, to move in order to optimize your growth, like you have to marshal organizational resources against that. So the, the OKR cascade then becomes you know, one of the most important things that you can do because it, it puts the fence around the random things that everybody's going to think up for their OKRs and, put, and, and, and instead turns that into organizational creativity around the best way to get those objectives accomplished. So you, get, you, you move from randomness that looks like we're wasting time on an OKR process to unlocking creativity and empowerment in the organization to figure out the best way to fix the problem that you've identified. So mm. that's, the, that's the first big lesson. The second lesson is even if you have that, people are really good at figuring out what they should do. What they aren't very good at is understanding what the dependencies are on allowing them to actually accomplish what they need to do. So one of the weaknesses of the OKR process and it's an any strategic planning process is the horizontal tie-offs. So I've got to do some work in my team but before I can, you need to do some work in your team because I need the messaging from product marketing before I can build the sales play, before uh, Jane's team can build the, the enablement for the field, before we can have any hope of running the AI play against 50 accounts by the end of the quarter. And so those horizontal tie-offs is kind of the next thing that you have to do in order to be really successful with the OKR process. And then the last one is like, it's a waste of time because nobody does it. It's kind of weird and paradoxical that everybody says, oh, we're wasting all this time on OKRs because the, the common behavior is at the beginning of the quarter, I waste a week or two weeks if you're really good or really bad of organizational time setting the OKRs for the quarter. Then at the end of the quarter, you waste a week or two weeks of organizational time, like post-justifying the stuff you actually did for the quarter underneath the OKRs <laughs> that you set at the beginning of the quarter. Because it's you only look at them twice in most organizations. Yeah. And so the, the, the last big thing that you have to do to be successful with OKRs is they have to be front and center. So... You have to sit there in your ELT meeting, your senior leadership team meeting, your global leadership team meetings, your staff meetings, your one-on-ones, and an agenda item needs to be like, where are we on the OKRs at the context that this meeting's at? What are we behind on? What's the action plan to fix the things we're behind on? What is medium or low confidence? We're not behind on it, but we think it may not happen the way we want to. Why is that? What organizational resources do we need to fix that? And what's the action plan to make that happen? And then have 
that action plan process be a, a feedback loop for whatever the cadence of that meeting is, hopefully weekly and at worst monthly, so that the cycle time of optimization and course correction of your OKRs is appropriate. So you know, those three things, and generally you're going to get value out of OKRs. Oh my God. Uh, Eric, I could ask you a million and one more questions about this. And I could talk to you all day. You are just an absolute machine of operational systems thinking. And I know I've got a huge amount of value out of this conversation and I would love to continue to talk to you, but it, it be respectful of your time and our audience time. I do need to start wrapping things up. I got a couple of lightning round questions for you to, to wrap up. You ready? All right. Let's do it. Eric, how do you define success? Oh, I'm not sure if that's an existential question or not, <laughs> but my my scoreboard is pretty clear. My success is first and foremost organizational success. Like that can pretty that's a pretty black and white kind of financial plan enterprise value creation scoreboard. The next is my team's success. That was a little harder to measure. It's one component growth, one component compensation, and then one component ergonomics of the ride. Was it are people <laughs> like engaged and having fun with all of the the, the hard work and, and urgency that, that, we're, that we're putting on things? We have a, the whole episode just about that, probably around culture, but. So that's probably my number one and number two. And then number three is, am I intellectually engaged? And sometimes even when you're losing, you're personally winning just because you're engaged with really difficult, important, meaty problems. I think boards like, they think I'm a pessimist most of the time, but in reality, I get really excited about things that are going wrong <laughs> because one, I know what they are. And two... It probably means that I can do something about them. If everything's going right and we're still not happy, like that's the worst thing that can possibly be happening to an organization. I love that. Eric, I view you as successful and nobody of any level of success gets there on their own. Has been a close leader, other mentor that has helped you on your journey? I am the Borg of like SaaS success. So I hoover up every last piece of knowledge and advice that I can get from anyone that that has a pulse. And then I assimilate that and I try to learn from it. So the list would be infinite. There's been a ton of great leaders in my career, some that I've worked for and some that I haven't, that, that have been instrumental from Jimmy Tribig, who was a great client or partner, created one of the, the first like iconic high availability mini computer companies. Like he, he would always, I, I would have meetings where he would just ask me one question and it would always be some rendition on like his advice would I'd just go ask for the order. And he really helped keep me commercially oriented. And he had just brilliant advice to John Long was a, still is a fantastic mentor of mine, a great SaaS thinker. And I could go on and on and on, but I've been very fortunate to have a lot of really talented people uh, help me along the way. Just go ask for the order. I think we could all benefit from that. Well, the if, order. It, well, if you could give one piece of advice, I give you a billboard, you put anything on it for other B2B SASEOs trying to scale their company, what would your billboard say? I, heck, now that I may have to say, ask for the order. 
<laughs> but, but probably if I were true to myself, it would, it would probably, since I probably said it a thousand times in this conversation, it's the number one rate limited to growth in a, a SaaS company is organizational capacity for change. So if you want to grow, start there. It's a big billboard. Uh, it's been a billboard, big billboard. We'll give, you, we'll give you two right next to each other so we can spread it out. Eric, it's been an absolute pleasure. How can listeners stay updated on your insights or and or Primo's journey? LinkedIn's the best place. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Engage with conversations with me on LinkedIn, on Twitter. And then I'm always available on email, eric at eric.erik at erik.net. And I'm always happy to help uh, entrepreneurs. It's my hobby. Well, Eric, we will put those in the show notes for listeners. Everyone, that wraps up this episode of SaaS Ceiling Secrets. A massive thank you to Eric for sharing his journey, insights, and valuable tips. For our listeners, if you found this conversation as enlightening as I did, remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Till next time, keep innovating, growing, and pushing the boundaries of what's possible.